Um, so this reading comes from Genesis 4, uh, verses 1 to 16. Adam lay with his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. But Abel brought fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, Let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer of the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, he will suffer vengeance seven times over. Then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. If it was hard for man and woman to live in the garden on God's terms. It's even harder to live outside the garden, not just with one's parents, but with one's siblings and with other people. Is that not true? Yes, it is, right. <laughs> we finished chapter chapter 3 with uh, God's grace. God clothed Adam and Eve before he sent them forth from the garden. We see that God has not abandoned Adam and Eve. They are banished from his immediate presence, but he hasn't left them totally. As Eve declares, I have gotten a man with the help of God. There's actually no help of there. She's just gotten a man with God. Is she now acting out chapter 3 and verse 16, thumbing her nose at her husband and saying, 
I got this guy with God's help. Remember, she, of course, came out of the man. Uh, Now a man has come out of her. She might think that puts her in a higher position. I don't know, but it's possible, isn't it? But she's gotten a man with the help of the Lord. God has not left Adam and Eve. He hasn't abandoned them. He's still with them. And their vocation hasn't changed. It's just got a whole lot harder. And if it's true that they were, in a sense, priests, they were mediators between God and the rest of humanity, uh, that has perhaps uh, been lost. They're now uh, just like other people. But here we come across the first act of worship. And it's an offering of grain from Cain, and an offering of uh, the first of the flock from Abel. And I think uh, the common interpretation is that Cain's offering was somewhat too casual, just something that he had grown, whereas Abel had chosen the first fruits and given the best bits, the fatty portions, not seen as the best things today, uh, but certainly in those days that was, uh, if you go to the Torah, you find that's what God liked anyway, and obviously the priests too. I wonder about that. We don't really get told that Cain's offering was inferior to Abel's. The writer to the Hebrews, uh, Hebrews 11 and verse 4, says that it was because of Abel's faith that his offering was accepted and Cain's was rejected. Note that God doesn't just reject the offering. We're told that the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. I think the point is that God accepts or rejects offerings, not so much on the quality of the offering, although I'm not suggesting you insult God uh, with your whatever you give to the church or whatever, but as God is mainly concerned with the heart. And when he asks Cain why he's angry, and then says, if you do well, will you not be accepted? I think he is putting the focus on Cain's heart. Scripture interprets scripture. I'm sure you've heard that statement before. And I think uh, Jesus is alluding to Cain and Abel when he teaches about anger in the Sermon on the Mount. I'm picking up at verse 21, Matthew 5. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. I believe that the problem 
with Cain was that he was already at enmity with his brother when he brought his offering. His faith, his relationship with God was not right. And that, rather than the quality of his offering, was the reason God had rejected not just the offering, but Cain himself. We see God uh, having a similar attitude again in the New Testament, don't we, when the, Jesus tells the parable of the publican and the sinner. The publican comes beating, uh, sorry, no, he doesn't come beating, well, does he puffs his chest out and says what a fine fellow he is. The sinner comes beating his chest and saying what a miserable sinner it's. It's the offering of the sinner that is regarded by God. And similarly, of course, the widow's might. Her offering was nothing compared with that of the wealthy. But in God's eyes, uh, he regarded it. We hear the same thing uh, in the prophets. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1, Isaiah goes on at length about God detesting offerings that come from a wrong heart. And in Amos 5, well known, I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps I will not listen. But let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. We need to be careful how we come before God. We need to be sure that our hearts are right with our brothers and our sisters or there is the danger that God will reject us. Even God's prophets can go wrong when God asks Cain, will he not do well if he reconciles with his brother, we find he uses exactly the same expression to Jonah. Remember Jonah had to go and preach to Nineveh and in chapter 3 he does so when he finally uh, gets there and Nineveh repents. What happens to Jonah? He's angry. He's angry like Cain. And in verse 4 of chapter 4, God says, do you do well to be angry? Why have you got angry? Because Nineveh's offering, which was one of repentance in sackcloth and ashes, when Nineveh's offering was a beautiful offering. Why are you jealous? Why are you angry? Why are you upset? The same expression. If we are going to do well, we need to be reconciled to our brothers and our sisters. And the reason for this is because if we don't, our anger will lead to worse things. Things do go, don't they, from bad in chapter 3 to worse in chapter 4. In chapter 3, shame leads to hiding, but in chapter 4, shame leads to anger. And I think there is uh, shame here still. Cain, 
senses. Shame, and when people are ashamed, they tend to take it out in anger. Kimberly uh, runs our youth ministry and a great job she does. And many of our young people are from very dysfunctional homes. Uh, We have had a number whose parents have been in prison. We have a number who are often too frightened to go home after youth group unless they know that uh, the latest uncle or stepdad or whatever is in bed. And often, of course, these young people are angry. They're angry, and one of the things we really notice is how deeply they feel shame. They have been made to feel ashamed of themselves. They are often ashamed of their home situation. They can't invite their friends back home. And often that is expressed in anger. God says to Cain, you have to deal with your anger. Sin is crouching at the door. Sin is personified here as being like an animal waiting to get in. And if you open the door to sin, if your anger is not resolved, then that will lead to worse things. You will be possessed by sin. And that will result ultimately in murder, whether it's murder in the heart that Jesus speaks about or literal murder as we see in the first homicide here. Some of you will have heard the uh, legend of the Cherokee grandfather who was teaching his grandson about life. And he said, a fight is going on inside me. It's a terrible fight. It's between two wolves. One is evil. He is anger, envy, sorrow, regret, greed, arrogance, self-pity, guilt, resentment, inferiority, lies, false pride, superiority, and ego. The other one, the other wolf is good. He is joy, peace, love, hope, serenity, humility, kindness, benevolence, empathy, generosity, truth, compassion, and faith. He said to his grandson, the same fight is going on inside you and inside every other person too. The grandson thought about it for a minute and then he asked his grandfather, which wolf will win? And the old Cherokees reply, the one you feed. If we feed anger, then it will take control and then we won't be able to stop it. Why is Cain so angry? Because God has faced him with the truth about himself. If you want to fall out with someone as a pastor, as a minister, help them to face the truth about themselves. Now hopefully it will lead to repentance and then God's transforming work. But you have to be prepared for it to lead to anger and turning away. Generally, none of us like to face the truth about ourselves. But we must do so and not again blame others for our situation. We don't know why Cain and Abel had fallen out, and I suggest it was before this particular offering, but It had to be sorted. God says to Cain, you need to go 
and reconcile with your brother if you want to do well. And then I will accept you and your offering. Well, verse 8 is an interesting one because uh, our translations will probably have Cain spoke to his, to his brother and when they were in the field. The variant translations, the Samaritan Pentateuch, the Septuagint, the Syriac and the Vulgate variations all have an extra phrase in there. They say Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and said, let us go out to the field. Now, if that's where the story ends, you might well think that Cain had said to Abel, mate, we need to talk, we need to sort this out. But Cain had not that in mind at all, did he? Cain has rejected God's counsel. And he goes to his brother, he says, let's take a walk. And then in cold blood and calculatingly, he rises up and kills him. He has not mastered his anger. There is a clear degeneration in these opening chapters of Genesis in terms of God's command for man to rule. Remember in chapter 1, the man and woman are given authority to rule over the plants and over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and every living thing. But following the fall, that uh, desire to rule degenerates. It's corrupted as the man and the woman, instead of ruling together, fight with each other as to who is going to dominate. We looked at that the last session. little uh, footnote to that, uh, in case you're wondering whether I think uh, the days of man being the head of the household are over under the new covenant. Uh, the answer is no, I don't. I still believe in, a, in an idea of headship that is God-ordained, but I think it's very different uh, to this struggle for rule. I actually believe, uh, and it's embedded in these opening chapters, that the headship of man is actually about accountability to God. So it's not so much what he does with his wife in terms of how he handles her. It's whether he is prepared to take responsibility for the spiritual well-being of his family. God clearly holds Adam to account first for the fall, does he not? He goes to him first. He is the one who should have overruled his wife and been accountable to God for what goes on. And that's where I think headship lies. When I marry people, I always say to the groom, you are responsible ultimately before God for your family. Together you and your wife will rule equally, but God will hold you accountable. And again, one of the great uh, tragedies in society today is that so many churches are full of women and children not this church, obviously, there's lots of men here. But men tend to want to uh, delegate or, or simply, uh, what's the word, neglect their role as head in that sense, but seize it in the wrong way of one of male domination. It's completely the wrong way around. Men need 
to be uh, to take the lead in matters of faith and ensuring that their families are walking in God's way. Well, the degeneration of rule uh, goes, say, from ruling in the right sense in chapter 1 to this uh, now becomes a struggle between the man and the woman in chapter 3. Now with Cain, Cain cannot even rule himself. He cannot even control his own emotions. So the whole idea of rule has been totally corrupted. He puts up no resistance and simply goes out and murders his brother. Uh, One commentator, uh, Derek Kidner, says, whereas Eve had to be talked into her sin by the serpent, it appears that Cain would not be talked out of his sin even by the Lord himself. I think that's a a very uh, interesting thing that uh, many of us, uh, in justifying ourselves, uh, are not going to let God even talk us out of our sin. So God comes to Cain and he asks the next question, where then is Abel your brother? Where is Abel your brother? And Cain's uh, distance from God is now completely clear. I mean, if it wasn't already, he lies. He says, I do not know. And then challenges God, am I my brother's keeper? Now, the word keeper, of course, is the the word that we had in chapter 2, that Adam and Eve were to keep until the Garden of Eden. Of course, Cain is his brother's keeper. Is he not a part of God's creation? But clearly not in Cain's mind. Cain has no sense of responsibility. He is that far now from God that he's lost all perspective on his own vocation. God doesn't wait for his answer. When he says, what have you done? He said, your brother is crying to me for his blood is crying to me from the ground. You can't hide anything from God. We already uh, have talked about that. And it's interesting that the result is that the ground is now cursing the man. Remember in chapter 3, God cursed the ground because of Adam. Now we have Cain cursed from the ground. It's a sign that order has the order that God had uh, instituted, created, has completely gone haywire. Everything's uh, gone awry. The whole rule thing's gone awry. And now the ground, the creature, if you like, the created thing is now cursing uh, the man. Everything uh, has gone wrong. There's a wonderful uh, picture of the curse on Cain. Uh, it's by one of the great French romantic painters, uh, Cormon. Do you want to chuck that up there? Uh, sorry, that was the driving from the garden. There it is. It's called, uh, I think it's called uh, The Fugitive, Cain the Fugitive. Isn't it a powerful picture? It's actually seven metres uh, wide, so it fills a whole wall uh, in the art gallery where it is. And you can see uh, this family driven uh, by this curse from the ground. Large steps, hunched over. Note how barren the ground is. Remember, Cain was a tiller of the ground. And God says the the ground will no longer yield its strength to you. One can assume from that that Cain uh, has had to turn to hunting. 
his vocation uh, is lost, you'll see some uh, some fairly disgusting uh, pieces of meat hanging from uh, from this litter as uh, Cain uh, leads his family on, uh, hunched over, big strides, uh, driven by the curse upon him. You can see an axon has built, suggesting uh, or alluding to the murder of his brother. He's a fugitive now in the land. He's cut off from God. He's cut off from other people. The struggle has now become a universal one. It's a tragic story and he's a tragic figure. And Cain goes down badly in the New Testament record. Jude mentions him. He speaks of those who blaspheme all that they don't understand. They walked in the way of Cain. There are many today who blaspheme uh, what they don't understand. There's an amazing amount of anger against God today. Uh, One of those guys was at Hitchens. His brother wrote a book called The Rage Against God about Christopher, his brother. Remember Christopher was the one who died of cancer, the great atheist, evangelical atheist? Well, his brother Peter wrote this book because he had come back to faith. And the reason he came back to faith was because he lived in the Soviet Union uh, before the Cold War ended and he saw the horror of Marxism and that drove him back to Christianity. And he says, the trouble with my brother is he's angry and he never reconciled with God. Anger does that to us. But the message of uh, chapter 4 is that you can control your anger. You can do well, but you need to humble yourself and reconcile with your brother. You need to be reconciled to God. I want to just uh, finish by thinking about the question, uh, who is my brother and am I my brother's keeper? I realise the question, who is my brother, isn't here. It's rather, where is my brother? So maybe we'll just say, where is my brother and am I my brother's keeper? Who is your brother? Well, I want to just... Uh, take you to Matthew 25, the parable of the final judgment. Remember, Jesus separates the sheep and the goats. And there's a few surprises about who one's brother is. This passage is often used to encourage people to do prison visiting, is it not? And I'm fully in support of prison ministry, but that isn't what this passage is about. Matthew 25 is about your suffering brethren. Your brothers and sisters in prison, not because they are criminals, but because of their faith. That's why people were put in prison in the first century. Christians were in prison for their faith. There's been more Christians put in prison in the last 50 years for their faith than probably all the rest of history put together. Most of our brothers and sisters around the world risk their life to do what we're doing. And I just want to put it to you. Are we our brother's keeper? What are we doing for the suffering church? It's not a judgment on you. I'm just putting it out there. It's something the Lord's challenged me about a lot in recent years. How frequently do we pray for our brothers and sisters when we 
hear of their persecution, do we communicate with them? You can do that. You can send an email to the Bishop of Cairo quite easily or to a pastor in Nigeria and say, we're praying for you, we're standing with you. If their church is destroyed, doesn't cost much to build a church in Nigeria. Two or three thousand dollars often will do the repairs. They care about us and they pray for their enemies. There's an amazing sermon that was preached on Palm Sunday, sorry, after the Palm Sunday bowlings, uh, bombings in, uh, in Cairo, in Egypt, last year uh, by one of the clergy there where he says uh, to the Muslims, thank you for attacking us. You strengthen our faith. And then saying, we love you. You're not our enemies. We're praying for you. And saying, we know that your anger is hurting you. He ends like this, talking to his people. We need to pray for them so they can sleep at night. A person who has all this hate and anger inside them, how can he sleep comfortably? Can you imagine we are being slaughtered and the king of peace gives us peace to sleep. But the one who slaughters all night, he can't sleep. So pray for them. Take it as a command. Take it as a duty. Take it as the application of Christ's instructions. We must all pray for them today that God opens their eyes and opens their hearts to his love because if they knew him, they could never do this. If Cain had known God, he could never have done what he did. If he'd been open to God's direction, his care, God still didn't abandon him. God protected him. But his life uh, was fruitless. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word which uh, exposes our hearts too. Lord, we pray now that you might uh, reveal to us if there is anger in our own hearts, any seeds of bitterness or resentment against anyone at all within our own natural families, in our society around us, or anything unresolved that makes our worship unacceptable or tainted before you. Lord, help us to be honest with ourselves, to heed your warning and to reconcile with anyone we might need to. And Lord, we acknowledge that we are our brother's keeper. We acknowledge we have brothers and sisters all around the world who need our support. Lord, we lift them to you now. Lord, praying that you might indeed minister to them in their hour of need. Lord, help us to be faithful in prayer for them and in anything else that we can do to support them. We thank you for their witness to us, particularly when they show love for their brother who sees himself as their enemy. Lord, we thank you that you do give us the strength to do all these things through your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.